Well, good morning. If you would, please go ahead and pass out those sermon outlines that are at the end of the rows there. There are three main points. We'll lead you through those as we go through. Uh, but there's plenty of space there for you to take notes along the way. We're pretty much going to uh, camp out in Isaiah 6 today and spend most of our time in that first half of Isaiah 6 today. I want to give you a little intro to our series. Today, uh, we begin a three-week series uh, that I'm really excited about personally uh, because about once a year, we try to sort of lay out for you in in big-picture terms who we are as a church and why we do what we do. Those of you who have been with us uh, for the last couple years have heard me talk about the three C's. And for us, that's the way we verbalize our mission as a congregation. It's about celebrating God, it's about cultivating growth, and it's about communicating the gospel. Those are the three C's that we want to make our big picture, overarching mission. We want to state those as our process for discipleship. It's it's how we make disciples and how we ourselves become the disciples God's called us to be. This 3C logo slide here uh, gives you a visual of those 3Cs. And I'm going to give you a little introduction here, uh, show you what it's like for the next three weeks here uh, by talking about the first week, and then we'll get into Isaiah 6 in just a second. You see, this this 3C uh, model, it could be anything. We could have different words. It, it could be something that, that doesn't rhyme at the end. It could be different letters. We could choose a whole bunch of different things. But this is what... Um, our leadership has chosen for how we as a congregation think about our ministry and our mission and who we are. And it's not just about these four walls. It's about your participation in the kingdom of God. You see, this isn't just about us as a church. This is about fitting participation in the kingdom of God. This is how to become someone who lives the 3C life. That's what we're going to talk about in these three weeks here. You see, we take this as our model because of this one scripture. Everything's going to be Isaiah 6 except for this today. This is from Matthew, the 28th chapter. Many of you know this as the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, it says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And this is the commission part. He says, because of that authority, I am saying to you, go, therefore, and make disciples. Making disciples is what we call a participial phrase. It's a a verbal noun for the nerds. It holds all of the stuff that everything else in those verses describe. Making disciples is the main thing here. So it says, go, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. These are our marching orders as a church and as individuals. Each of us are called to be about the Great Commission, first and foremost. And so we want to have a model for how we think about who we are as a congregation that fits in line with what Jesus says is fitting participation 
in his kingdom. And to be a fitting participant, somebody who, who fits in that kingdom, is to be somebody who celebrates God. Who he is in and of himself, per se. Who celebrates God and his work in our lives. That's the first C. Somebody who cultivates growth. Who provides ways for God to get in our hearts by the way we do things in Bible study and in prayer and Sunday school and in small groups, that we're cultivating places where the Holy Spirit can move in our lives and that we are people who are going, who are communicating the gospel by what we say and by what we do. That's living the 3C life. So that's sort of the, the overarching uh, vision for the series and for the 3Cs. The genius... <clears throat> for us, is that we want to state our purpose as a process. If you're taking notes, that's something that we want to especially be careful of, is that we want to state our church's mission, our purpose for why we exist as a process. So instead of having a mission statement and a vision statement and a purpose statement and a how to maintain the building correctly statement, and, and, and everything in your life statement, we want to have one simple three C's statement that you can have in your hearts and minds like that. Something that is simple that you can put on a napkin as you're sitting across the table from somebody and say, well, let me tell you how, how I think about the Christian life. Let me tell you how, how our church likes to talk about who we are as a community. We want to give you vocabulary for fitting participation in this church and in the larger kingdom by how we communicate these three C's. <clears throat> so I'm really excited about the next three weeks because you're going to get a good picture of our overarching goals for our congregation. You can go ahead and take that down, folks, uh, upstairs. I'm skipping ahead to the passage here, so uh, hope that makes sense to you up there. Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll uh, dive into Isaiah 6. Lord God, we are submitted to you. You are the master. We are your servants. And we're gathered here in that vein under the assumption that you are Lord of our lives and that you tell us who we are and how we are to live. And so we worship you today, asking that you would make of us people who celebrate who you are and what you've done in our lives as we seek through the scriptures to see how you've done that with those who have gone before us. Teach us through your Holy Spirit as we dive into your word, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you're taking notes, there are two main purposes today. We're going to sort of, uh, first off, give you a, a biblical vision of worship in basic terms, uh, Isaiah 6 is probably the, the best passage in all of Scripture to talk about that. So we're going to unpack Isaiah 6 and give you sort of a biblical theological vision for what worship looks like. And secondly, we're going to talk a little bit about practical outworking of that at First Christian Church. <clears throat> so those are the two main purposes for today. And I'm going to unpack it uh, in a way that fits with our statement 
about celebrating God. We're going to talk about celebrating God for who he is, celebrate God, and we're also going to talk about how he works in our lives, how, how, how we name the truths about his work in our lives in worship. Have you ever been to a uh, really, really great party? You ever been to a really good party? And no, I'm not talking about um, the kind of party where participants may not exactly remember half of what happened. Um, this is not that kind of party where the measure of its success was whether or not the house was trashed. Because as we all know, those kinds of parties, as we all know, those parties trash lives, houses, uh, and, and things are in control other than the Holy Spirit. What I'm talking about is a Holy Spirit-led party. That, that's a phrase that's probably not been spoken in First Christian Church. I'm going to venture, venture a guess. A Holy Spirit-led party. <clears throat> it's the experience of being in deep relationship with other believers and the Holy Spirit being in our hearts and minds in a way that connects us and that we can palpably sense. It's like when you're sitting around with people you know really well, really deeply, and you're telling stories to one another. You know, one person says, hey, remember that time when you fell flat on your face? And we all laugh and make fun of that person because we were all there and we remember it and, you know, we tell those stories of one another. Or remember that time when you did this? Uh, that was... That was that was a hard time, and, 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 and I remember that time, and we talk about it. We tell those stories to one another. It's those kinds of rich, rich times in our lives when people with unity come together, and everybody's laughing and carrying on, and you're in that sweet spot of deep relationship with friends where you know each other really well. And you can tell those same jokes that you've told a thousand times, and we all know where they're going. That's rich, deep relationship. When you're, when you're partying with good friends, whatever the occasion, if the Holy Spirit is in the hearts and in the minds of the partiers, and you're sharing fun times, and you're laughing, and you're sharing hard times, and you're crying with one another. That, my friends, is a slice of heaven. It's a slice of heaven when we are around the table with good friends, remembering and sharing good things, and laughing with one another, as well as commonly holding one another up and encouraging when it's, when it's hard, when it's, when it's painful, when it's stressful. Those are enriching and fulfilling experiences, aren't they? They're moments, they're little glimpses of the glory of God among us. They're glimpses of the glory of God among us in ways that deepen us and sustain us and enrich us and, and make our lives meaningful. Now, now the church, the church is that, that one place in life where we have every reason to celebrate like that all of the time. See, when we get together in corporate worship, we gather as the body of Christ, we gather to remember 
to remind ourselves, to recall the greatest event that has ever happened in the world when God sent Christ to be our advocate when we could not advocate for ourselves. We get together with people that we know well and we tell stories. Stories about the great work that God has done in the world, in your life, and in my life. And we name those things. And we hold them up and we say, see what God has done? And we celebrate that together. That's the sense of what I want to communicate here with what it means to celebrate God and his work in our lives. <clears throat> you see, we may not always realize this as the number one thing in our lives. We may not even name this as such in a formal sense, but the truth of this, I hope, will be clear to you today. We need, as people who are broken, who need redemption, who have experienced sin in our flesh and in our bones, we desperately need to celebrate the things we know that God has done and that he is doing, and that he will do in our lives. We need it so badly that we have to be here Sunday after Sunday, week in and week out, to name those things to one another, to recall and to remember. We need to celebrate God's glory. If you're taking notes, this is what we do in corporate worship. And it's cheesy because it rhymes, but I think it's true. We celebrate God's glory by telling his story. We celebrate God's glory. Okay, I'm getting some nods. Yes, Scott, that's cheesy. We celebrate God's glory by telling his story. We are gathered as his people, as his children, to tell one another the story of who God is and what he's done in our lives. That is real celebration. Not an out-of-control party that trashes houses and lives, but the opposite. It's an observance of who God is and what he has done. And it builds us up and it encourages us. It makes us into who he wants us to be and inspires us to live that kind of life if we are celebrating. It helps us give ourselves wholeheartedly to the God who loves us more than we could ever imagine. So how do we continue here at First Christian Church to create that kind of environment? Where we're, where we're naming the glories of God and telling those stories of his work to one another. Well, I think we need to be people who, like Isaiah here in uh, chapter 6, goes through this three-stage process. What does it look like? This is the question we're answering today if you're taking notes. What does it look like to be someone who celebrates God and his work in their lives? We'll take Isaiah 6 here as our pattern. The first thing that Isaiah does here that is a pattern for us is that he is submitted to God's sovereignty. Isaiah is submitted to God's sovereignty. Someone who celebrates God is submitted to his sovereignty. The key there is humility. It's understanding who you are in light of who he is. It's saying, God, you are in charge, and I submit myself and my life and everything about me to your lead. Follow along in Isaiah 6, uh, 1 to 4 here. 
where we see Isaiah submitting to God's sovereignty. Just look at all these, these fanciful, uh, huge, majestic images of royalty that are used in describing God here. Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This, this is a picture of Almighty God holding court. And in contrast to King Uzziah here, who had died, this king never dies. He is sitting upon a throne, was then, is now, sitting upon a throne, even while this earthly King Uzziah has died. He's just recently died. And he is not a lowly and an earthly king, that is God, but he is one who is high and is lifted up. And as it says, this is interesting, the train of his robe, it filled the temple. You see, when a king would defeat another king in war or in battle, that king would come behind and cut off the train of the robe of the defeated king. And they would take that, that train, that robe, and add it to the winning king's train. So, so when the Almighty God, not King Uzziah, when the Almighty God has a robe, it's so long it fills the temple. King after king after king who has come before has been defeated by the Almighty God whose, whose robe just keeps on going. So this isn't little Kate Middleton, Princess Diana train. This is the robe filled the temple. This is all comers are defeated. This is entirely categorically different than your experience of kingship. This is kingship that goes beyond kingship. We'll talk about those kinds of ways of describing God in just a second here. Look at verse 2. Above him stood the seraphim. Seraphim or, or seraphs is the multiple of, of the word seraph. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two... He flew. Now, the word seraph is just a word that means a fiery being. Seraphim are fiery, sort of angelic beings. And we aren't told how many of them there are here, uh, but from, from the descriptions we see in Scripture about, about angels who are, who are together and singing the praises of God, it's, it's probably multitudes of them. It could be a whole throng of them. And, and we don't really know what they look like, but we know that the presence of God is enough reason for these, uh, these, these angels who worship in purity for even them, in an act of humility, to submit to God's sovereignty. Even superhuman creatures like seraphim, they must humble themselves before an almighty God. Verse 3, it continues. These seraphim, they called to one another, and they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You see, God's not just, he's not just holy. He's three times holy. There is not one other adjective used in the Old Testament that is repeated like this. Only the word holy. Holy, holy, holy. And it's not just holy plus holy plus holy. It's perfection 
infinite perfection times infinite perfection times infinite perfection. It's like, it's like the seraphim are sort of straining to describe with language what they can't do. It's like they're straining at the leash of language to say that God alone is God. He's not like us, but just bigger and nicer. He's in an entirely different category. He is holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And then verse 4, the foundations of the thresholds of the temple shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Uh, the presence of God here is, is likened to the presence of God at Mount Sinai. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, actually last week in chapter 12 of Hebrews, we talked about that very scene. These images here are intended uh, to invoke remembrances of the Mount of God where Moses received God's law. And, and Mount Sinai was a place of dread because sinful people cannot be in the presence of God and survive. It doesn't work because his holiness, his three times holy perfection is categorically unable to curry favor with sinfulness in even the slightest measure. So it describes the praise of those seraphim and the presence of God in a way that is so compelling that it says that it shakes the very foundations of the temple. It's, it's filled with smoke. You see, worship puts us in touch with the supernatural. What we do here is sacred, sacred work. Worship puts us in touch with things that you cannot possibly fathom or touch or speak to, or hear, or be a part of. You're not that good. It can't happen. It doesn't work. Worship puts us in touch with supernatural things. Which tells us, which leads us to the second part here in Isaiah. The natural response to that kind of almighty God... <clears throat> The natural response to that kind of perfection is submission. I'm sorry, we're still on the first point here. Uh, but I want to point out this, this idea about submission here. Um, because submission, submission is not a, a popular word, <laughs> frankly, in our world today. In our self-actualized, ego-driven world, submission is not a cool word. It's not a buzzword right now. It smacks of lack of self-control. Submission to someone else is admitting our inability to govern ourselves. You see, the problem with those of us who is pretty much all of us who are raised in this self-actualized country is that we are raised from the womb to vehemently guard our right to govern ourselves. As people from the womb, we are told your goal is to actualize your potential, to live freely without anyone else telling you how to live. Certainly not some 38-year-old preacher. You can't tell me what to do. You're right. 
I certainly can't. But the God whose robe fills the temple certainly can. That's not how it works with God, friends. This is not how it works. Self-ego-driven potential is not how it works when confronted with God's perfections, with perfections that are so infinitely beyond our greatest thoughts of Him that we can't even come up with words but just repeating His perfections. Holy, holy, holy. You can be as rich or as smart or as beautiful or as kind or as spiritual or as disciplined as anybody on the planet has ever, ever been. And you will still be infinitely less holy than Almighty God. And that should result in nothing but submission and worship and awe and reverence. There's no place for ego when you worship a God who is infinitely beyond anything you've ever measured up to. <laughs> but we still like to stubbornly worship ourselves in a myriad of ways in our lives. Spiritual growth and development is about realizing those ways and doing away with them, friends. You see, it's like a confrontation that happened between a battleship and another light that was in the distance that was faint that the battleship saw. You see, the captain of that huge warship saw that faint light in the distance, and he told his signalman to send this message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. Well, pop promptly the return uh, message came back. Alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain of that huge warship got angry and said, Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. And the message came back promptly. Alter your course 10 degrees north. I am Seaman Third Class Jones. <laughs> Immediately, the captain sent a third message, knowing that it would evoke fear. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I am a battleship. After a few quiet moments... The last message came, alter your course 10 degrees north. I am a lighthouse. <laughs> the hard part is that we think that we are big and bad like battleships in the middle of the night, friends. When in infinite contrast, God is an immovable lighthouse to whom we must submit. Friends, all sorts of voices shout orders to us in the night, telling us what to do, how to adjust our lives. But it is only those, only those who are truly worshipers of God, those who are submitted to His sovereignty, those who hear the clarion call of His voice and the clear sound of His presence, only those people who are worshipers. You see, you can't escape his presence. His train fills the whole temple. His garment and his presence is so vast that he covers our entire place of worship. This kind of God is not our pal. He's not our chum. He has a presence that inspires awe and submission and wonder. 
So the first element of our worship is submission to a sovereign God. And that, that alone is an element worth celebrating. That God per se, in and of himself, that he is worthy of being celebrated. That's the first half of our first C of celebrating God. It's about celebrating who he is in and of himself. And that's enough to celebrate. My dad, who taught worship for 100 years, who uh, led worship in churches for 35 years, says this, Even if God had not saved us, we would still have reason to worship God. He is fundamentally worthy of worship no matter what we think, no matter what we feel, no matter how we act. No matter what anybody, anyone, everywhere, anywhere has ever done or said, he is fundamentally worthy of our worship. Submission to a sovereign God always also involves an encounter with our sinful selves. An encounter with our sinful selves. Look at verse 5 here. And this is Isaiah responding in submission. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He says, I am so lost. The word there is silent. I have nothing I can do in the presence of that holiness, in light of my own sin, and be in silent awe because of who I am in comparison to who he is. That second part of Isaiah's worship here is his encounter with his sinful self. And the third part is the way we tell our story. It's the why we tell our story. It's what we do to come here and talk about His work in our lives. It's that Isaiah is submitted to God's grace. That's that next phrase there. Submitted to God's grace. The result of an encounter with our sinful self and a holy God is that we celebrate His work in our lives. That, that we talk about His grace. That third element here of our worship is our submission to His grace. He does what we cannot do for ourselves. He considers us, he considers us worthy of being in His presence. That's what grace is. It's being considered and counted as being worthy of being in His presence. Look at the uh, sixth and the seventh verses here in this passage. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin is atoned for. Here, friends, is the high point of our worship our experience of the amazing grace of a perfectly holy God who counts us as worthy of being in His presence because of His work on our behalf. Here's the presence of the Christ who made it possible for us 
to be in the presence of God. Here's the presence of the Holy Spirit changing our hearts and our minds and our behavior. Here is God coming into our presence when we could not come into His. Here in the, in the coals from the fire of the altar is the Holy Spirit, a living fire, touching us and cleansing us, purifying sin from us to forgive us and bring us into the full presence of God. That is what happens in worship. So we submit to the grace of God. You see, friends, worship is about submission to God's sovereignty. It's about encountering our sinful selves. And it's about submission to His grace. Those kinds of transactions are what happen here week in and week out. When that happens for us, our ugly story of sin is redeemed into a beautiful story of freedom and of transformation. In order for us to do that, friends, we have to submit to worship of Him first and foremost. You see, we are always, make no mistake, we are always, every single one of us, always submitting to something. It doesn't just happen here in worship. It happens 24 hours a day, every moment of your life. All people everywhere in all of history have been doing something that is called worship of someone or something. Read along with me. I want to read this quote and share a brief video with you in just a second here. This quote uh, describes uh, something that encapsulates these ideas about submission to God in worship. It's a great quote, and I'll read it for you. It's on your... Uh, on your sheet there. It says this. At this very moment, and for as long as this world endures, everybody inhabiting it is bowing down and serving something or someone. An artifact, a person, an institution, an idea, a spirit, or God through Christ. Everyone is being shaped thereby by that thing, and is growing up towards some measure of fullness, whether of righteousness or evil. No one is exempt, and no one can wish to be. We are, every one of us, unceasing worshipers, and will remain so forever. For eternity is an infinite extrapolation of one of two conditions. It's a surrender to the sinfulness of sin unto infinite loss, or it's the commitment of personal righteousness unto infinite gain. This is the central fact of our existence. And it drives every other fact. And within it lies the story of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation, or final loss. The question, friends, is what are you going to worship it's why it's our first C. If you do not get that right, forget growth, forget communicating the gospel. You have to be a worshiper for those other parts of your life to happen in a manner that brings you to become who God made you to be. I want you to watch this video. It, it summarizes this idea of, of everybody submitting to something in worship.
everyone worships. Sure, not everyone wants to call it worship or even think about what they're doing. But everyone worships something. Everyone has some ultimate thing that they center their life around. Something or someone that they hope will give their life meaning or purpose. For some, it's religion. For others, it's money. For some, it's fun. For others, it's success or power. Or science or knowledge or beauty or popularity. For some, it's love or sex. For some, it's their family. But the Bible says all things were made by Jesus and for Jesus. This means we were created to worship. There is only one who is really worthy of our worship. That's why nothing else in this world satisfies. We keep on looking, we keep on striving, we keep on buying, but nothing delivers. Nothing brings us that deep satisfaction that we long for. But when you live your life with Jesus as the center, doing exactly what you're created to do. You're right in the place you're supposed to be. So the irony is that when we give our lives over to worship Jesus, that's when we actually find ourselves. Everyone worships. But we were made to worship just one. celebrating God here at First Christian Church is about creating the kind of environment where what we do here makes us into the kind of people who want with our whole hearts to give it all to the only one worthy of having it. So we want to invite you to become a part of that celebratory community among us, where we become people each week who bow before the throne like Isaiah saying, you alone are worthy of all of me. And I give it to no one or nothing else other than you, Lord. If you're looking for a church home where that's the case, we want to invite you to come forward if you're a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, or if you want to proclaim and publicly declare Jesus as your Lord.